Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Marty Smith's America podcast. This is volume 101. We're done Travis, counting, and yeah, uh, and I'll, I'll let people know also this is part two of us redoing this because uh, we started doing the podcast, and I had to stop you because I uh, forgot to press record. So this is round two of we were uh, solid, podcast. We were, we were probably 15, 10, 15 minutes, minutes in. in and, yeah, and so I've, it, I looked up, and I'm like, the computer's not recording this, so... Uh, Episode 100, whatever is, uh, part two is now started. That's all right, man. Hey, all of us, all of us make mistakes and it's okay because it, it's just something that uh, we can go back and do it again. At least it wasn't like an interview. Yeah. If it would have been an interview, then we, we might have had to have a a, a meeting. We might have had to have a download on that. So we're Um, good. Yeah. It's all good. So I will say that I've been very busy. Very, very busy, and ever since NASCAR came back, and with all of the amazing steps that the sport has taken over the last, what, May, I think May 17th was their first race back. So, month. So, in the last month, NASCAR has taken the lead in amazing ways. They were the first back to competition amid the COVID 19 pandemic, and they have done a great job with that. Uh, just a phenomenal job, meticulous plan, well executed. And the sport is thriving. And then you fast forward to the past couple of weeks, and they have taken a great lead in the push for racial equality and social justice, led by Bubba Wallace and led by Jimmy Johnson and a driving core that is galvanized to make a difference. And leadership within the sport that has made the decision that we're going to make change. We're not going to stand by and watch anymore. And it's just been amazing to watch. And I've been so immersed in that. And basically on a daily basis for the past three weeks or month, I've been creating original content regarding NASCAR or reporting live from somewhere or something. And so the podcast, unfortunately, has been, has had to suffer a little bit for that. But we hear you guys. We're so grateful that you love it that much that you are wondering where in the hell the podcast is. And it's a great podcast. And I say it's great because the interview that you will hear today is with one of the greatest Ohio State Buckeyes ever. And we had to do that, guys, just for the record. In order to get Travis's bubbles back level, He was a little off kilter after last week when we had former All-American from the University of Michigan, Dr. Chris Hutchinson, who's an ER doctor outside of Detroit, has battled COVID-19 and been on the front lines of that. And his son currently plays for Michigan. So he had such amazing perspective on what that disease is, its impact, and yet he is completely open and confident in his son going back to campus to play football. It was a great interview, but just my skin was itching all last yep. week. It just, it didn't feel right. Like I'm planning on going back to driving back to Ohio in a couple of weeks. And I, I couldn't do that until we released this interview. So I'm glad we're doing this now. So uh, I'm glad that, that we could, could bring Eddie back. Eddie is a little bit of a tease. Let me read this guy's, Twitter biography for you guys. NFL legend, 
Heisman Trophy winner, actor, speaker, entrepreneur, yogi, and Renaissance man. I mean, one of those, just one of those bullet points is a pretty damn good resume. But Eddie George has all of that on his resume. Y'all are going to love this interview. It's extremely insightful. He's very vulnerable. And Travis and I were very moved by it, quite frankly. You're going to love it. But before we get to Eddie, there's a very important topic that must be discussed. Travis has been waiting with bated breath. Many of you have asked me about this via social media posts. I had a guy ask me about it at the bar the other day. Laney and I went and had a couple cold ones with my buddy Rayfield Milton from high school. And a guy walked up and he wanted to know about the RV. And I laughed very hard. And Laney laughed very hard. So I have to break this down for you guys. I have an amazing relationship, a personal service agreement with Academy Sports and Outdoors. To say I love representing this company is an understatement. It's awesome. And here's why. Academy has an advertising relationship with the Southeastern Conference Network, with SEC Nation and other various programming, Marty and McGee. And so as part of that, I go out in the woods with Academy and we capture all of this outdoors content to help promote their amazing outdoors business. I have done the craziest things. I've been in the bayou swamp with alligators. I've gone flounder gigging. I've gone red fishing down at the mouth of the Mississippi where it meets the Gulf of Mexico at Port Eads, Louisiana. I've gone fish noodling in a lake in Mississippi. I've gone everywhere. I mean, like we've gone all over the South and collected this amazing content. So I do about eight or 10 shoots a year with Academy. And so we made the decision that we could social distance and capture this content because we're outdoors. And so we made the decision, all right, we can't stay in hotels, we can't fly, and why not get my family out of the house? So I make the decision, all right, I'm going to rent an RV, and I'm going to bring Lainey, Cameron, Mia, and Vivian with me on this week-long string of of capturing this content. We were going to start at Lake Norman at our home. We were going to drive to Charleston, South Carolina. I was going to interview this guy and go see his oyster farm learn about that and participate in that, and then go over to North Georgia where I was going to go trout fishing. And by the way, one of the most fun days of my life was spending time trout fishing in North Georgia, near Clarksville, Georgia. And then we were going to go from there up to far western North Carolina, East Tennessee, to the Fontana Lake Dam And I was going to go fishing there and hiking there and really accentuate how beautiful far western North Carolina, the Great Smoky Mountain Natural uh, Natural Reserve is, and all that. And we were going to do that over a week's time. Going to be a blast. Further subject my children to the outdoors. I've been very remiss as a dad, not really getting them out there enough. And so this was going to be fun. So I go on the Internet to rent an RV. And I wanted kind of a bigger RV because there were going to be moments when I was out capturing that content, in a lot of cases, Laney would be charged with parenting and watching the dog 
We got this new puppy. She was charged with all of that responsibility. And so I wanted there to be some space for everybody to move during that time. And so, all right, I'm going to get this 32-foot RV, Class C. It has, And what that means is it has like a truck cab and an RV back. And so I go on this Internet site. I'm not going to name it. And I, I get this RV. It's kind of like an Airbnb for RVs, right? And so it's a Charlotte-based uh, RV owner, and everything's great. And so I'm meeting the RV owner at a central location in order to grab the RV. So we get there, and Lainey and I are together, and we're walking around the RV, and they're kind of like, well, this is this. the locks on these bins are broken. Just do your best to keep them closed. Okay, uh, and and we're going around. Don't use the range because it gets really hot if you use the range. There's a grill that you can use instead. Okay, very good. So we're going around, and they're showing me all of the amenities of this RV. Fine. I get in the RV, and I start driving. And I notice immediately on my drive back to my house that the RV's on empty. So I'm like, oh, I guess maybe that's the way this works. I'm a little ignorant about how this works. I guess maybe they give it to the renter empty, and it's the renter's job to fill it up. Cool, no sweat. So I go to the gas station on my way home. I put 100 bucks of gas in the thing. And then I come on to the house, and I back it into the driveway. And I'm excited. I'm excited as hell, man. Like, I'm like, man, this is so cool. We're going to go as a family and we're going to have a great memories and we're going to build some memories and we're going to go fishing and we're going to go hiking and we're going to be outdoors together and we're not going to have devices and we're not going to be distracted and we're going to be in this small confined space together where we can just have this beautiful fellowship as a family. I get the thing in the driveway. So, I, I go to plug it into the house, which you do that in order to keep all the instrumentation running and whatnot while you're stationary at the house. You plug it in. So I go to plug it in, and the adapter for the house, the ground prong is broken out of the adapter. So I've now texted the owner twice. Hey, uh, it's out of gas. I guess I'm supposed to f- fill it up. And they're like, well, it's been real busy time. You should probably fill it up. Great. All right. Uh, the ground prong is busted out of the adapter. Oh, it is? Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, I don't think it's going to work. You might need to maybe get a new ground prong. Well, I figured out how to finagle a way to prop the adapter into the plug using like one of my kids toys or something so i got it plugged up to the house now despite no ground prong i got it plugged into the house i'm getting ready to get fired up to start packing this thing we got food to put in the fridge i gotta crank the generator eat despite the fact that it's plugged up etc etc well the refrigerator ran off of propane so we're trying to get this propane lit. Won't go, it won't go, it won't go. All right, don't worry. We'll worry about that after a while. Let's just start getting some stuff, some bags on here and whatnot, because we wanted to leave that day. 
I'm doing this and that, and my buddies come over, my two neighbors come over to help me. Just look, they know more about RVs than I do, and so they're looking over, looking it over. And my neighbor, Daniel, goes, hey, man, pop the hood. Let me just look at the oil and the transmission fluid. I'm sure it's perfect, but let's just go ahead and look. Bro, it was out of oil. He pulled that dipstick, and it was dry as a bone. If I would have driven that thing down to Charleston, South Carolina, I might have blown the, I might have blown the damn motor. It was dry. We put eight quarts of oil in that thing. Can you believe that? That, if you broken down the side of the highway, it would not have been good. No. So we're just kind of laughing about, like we're a little shocked, but we're just kind of still kind of laughing about it. And so, Onward, we're getting ready to pack and everything, and my daughters come running out. Mia and Vivi come running out, and they're like, Daddy, this is awesome. Where do we sleep? And I said, come here. So I, I, I walk them in the RV, and I show them there was a, a bunk bed over top of the cab of the truck. And I said, you guys are going to sleep in there together. You're going to have sleepover up in there together. And they're like, that's awesome. I walk back out the door. All of a sudden, Vivi comes out of the RV, and she approaches Mama. She walks over to Lainey, and they're having a conversation or whatever. Well, I'm starting to get a little bit stressed out because I'm looking around, and we don't have any oil in it. Like, it doesn't seem very well cared for, etc. So I'm like, man, I don't know about this. I'm not sure if this is going to work. Well... Little did I know that Vivi's message to Laney was, there are ants in the bunk bed where we're supposed to sleep. Oh, no. So Laney, knowing her husband very well, that that honestly would have sent me to the moon, very delicately relays this information to me. I walk into the RV, Travis. It's not like a couple ants. Here and there, it's like a cartoon. They are having a parade on the border of the bunk bed, and it's like, I mean, I mean, thousands of ants. I'm like, what in the world is going on? Am I in a, is this a, am I being punked? I go out of the RV, walk around the other side of the RV, and where the awning of the RV extends out for like, you know, sitting there having a cold beer once you're camp. There is also a parade of ants up there making its way from the outside, crawling through a crevice somewhere into the inside. That was the last straw. So I call the owner and I said, you have been amazingly kind. I appreciate that you would be willing to let me rent your motor home, but I'm going to need you to come get it. I'm going to need you to drive up here and get this thing, and I need you to refund my money. And the owner says, I can't refund your money because I don't have your money yet. The third-party website had my money. So I had to go through all these hoops and stuff. Ultimately, I did get reimbursed, so thank you to everybody that worked so hard to make that happen. Owner takes it away. So I'm like, I need a beer, man. I got to calm the hell down. So I go down to the lake, and I I sit there, and I'm just staring at the water with my wife. And I'm having a beer, and I have another beer, 
and I have another beer. And Laney's like, Martin, what are you going to do? How are, you have to get either we're not going or you got to figure out another RV. I'm like, I had to work out. All right, man. At this point, it's like 9.30 p.m. on Saturday night. I have to go to Bristol first thing in the morning. I'm leaving my house at 5.45 a.m. to get to Bristol to do Sports Center the next morning. So all of a sudden, it dawns on me, wait a minute, I'm going to Bristol. And one of my best friends in the whole wide world, Wendell Jones, we met at Radford, has not an RV but like a motorhome. This thing's a 40-foot luxury motor coach. I'm like, I can't do that. And Laney's like, just call him. So I FaceTime Wendell, and he's the sweetest man. He's the most giving man. He's like, yeah, man, you can take it. I'm like, man, I can't drive that thing. It's humongous. He goes, dude, I got you. Well, because I was going to Bristol anyway, and Wendell lives near Bristol, I just went over there. I went there. I did my work in the morning on Sports Center, and then I went and met Wendell at Sullivan Central High School in Kingsport, Tennessee. And he, for two hours, walks me through this tutorial of this RV. And I'm like, all right. So I jump in that thing, and I'm cruising down the highway. And I was white-knuckled, man. Like, it's a lot to manage when an 18-wheeler comes screaming by you at, you know, 75 miles an hour on a bridge, and you feel like you're going to get blown into the river. Fast forward to the next morning. I get the thing home. That Sunday evening, I'm exhausted, all right? So I pass out and take a nap. And while I take a nap, my awesome wife works feverishly and tirelessly to get this thing packed up with food in the fridge and kids' bags and all that stuff. We had the kids sleep on the motorhome so that Laney and I could grab the dog at 445, jump in the bus, and start rolling. We do that. It's 4.50 a.m. on Monday morning. I'm trying to pull this motorhome out of my driveway. I knew that I had to go across the street on which I live and be have the front tires flush with the sidewalk on the other side in order to turn this thing around and not have it rock back and forth. Well, I kind of forgot that part, Travis. <laughs> I, I, I pull out of my driveway. And not only did I forget that part, I forgot to tell Laney that there's a locking mechanism on the refrigerator so that the fridge door doesn't blow open. Well, guess what happened? I go over this sidewalk at like a 45-degree angle at 4.50 in the morning. Laney's in the yard letting the dog poop. And, dude, I go over this sidewalk, and the bus is a rocket. The fridge door blows open, strawberries and ketchup and stuff. Ketchup didn't blow open. Don't have a heart attack, Wendell. Strawberries blow out. There's strawberries everywhere. And and unopened ketchup blows out of the refrigerator. There's waters are flying. You just had a full yard sale in in the RV. Full yard sale. And my anxiety went to 50 immediately. Ultimately, we get it out of the neighborhood. And we're on our way. We get to Charleston. Go do the shoot at the oyster farm. It's awesome. I learned so much. Had a blast. Get back there that night. Everything seems great. 
But it was weird because there was not a 50-amp hookup at that site, which for those of you who are RV nerds, which I am now, um, 50-amp hookups are nice because you don't need to use your generator. You just use the electricity. Well, I had the generator on the whole time, and I had it hooked up to the electricity. And so everything's fine. We get out of there just fine. We get to the next stop in Clarksville, Georgia. Driving that bus through the mountains was terrifying. I can't tell you. Like, I'm talking switchbacks, 25-mile-an-hour turns where I'm going 15. You got half the town lined up behind you telling you you're number one out the window, blowing horns. It was it was exhausting. Like, anxiety to 10. We get to Clarksville, Georgia. Well, there was some sort of issue where we couldn't get in the campground there. So they parked us in this random field. Oh my. So I, because I had run the generator all night long at the other, at Charleston, the generator in that bus pulls from the batteries that run the interior electrical stuff inside the coach. I had drained the generator to the point that because I had no hookup I had no electric hookup in that field in Georgia, and that generator was so drained. I go to put the jacks down to level the bus. It's acting weird, and I'm like, it's a, it's cool. So I caught poor Wendell. Travis, I bet I called Wendell, and this is not an exaggeration. Bet you I called him 30 times in a week. I bet he him this, Asking him that. He's so patient. So I think that... I've got the bus level, but the way that the instrumentation is, it's a black panel that is a little bit bigger than a credit card that is, that has these pads arranged in a diamond and which is like the front jacks, side jacks, back jacks, right jacks. Then there's a green circle in the middle and when that green circle blinks green you know that it's level well it was blinking green but the two diamonds on the right and left were blinking yellow so i'm like i'm not too sure about this i don't know if i should do this or not so i talked to my buddy and he's like i think it's probably cool so i go to start putting the slides out you have to have the bus level before the slides can come out. I start to put the slides out, dude. All of a the sudden, there's like pieces of ornate trim blowing off the sides of the bus. Like gorgeous trim is br- snapping in half, shooting off of the wall. I freak completely out, dude. Like freak completely out. Did you think that you're going to have to buy this uh, RV and get Wendell a new one? I didn't know. I just, I was so embarrassed and my anxiety was so high. I'm calling Wendell, like telling him whatever. And he's so patient. He didn't get mad. 
He's like, man, it's cool. We'll, we'll, we'll fit. I'll go ahead and start looking for those pieces on the internet. And that was that. Well, Travis, because there was no electric hookup, I had to keep running that generator to keep the air conditioner on in the middle of that field all night. So I move the bus. I get the bus level. I put the slides out. Everything seems to be okay. I get the slides back in the next morning, and uh, we're on our way to the Fontana Dam in western North Carolina. That drive was even worse. Um, as I'm going down the mountain to get to Fontana Dam, I start smelling the brakes. I'm living on these brakes, man. I freak out again. Like, you can smell the brakes, dude. They're burning up, right? So I pull off to the side of the road. I'm like, I, being in NASCAR so long, I'm like, I gotta let these brakes cool down, man. I'm gonna burn these, I'm gonna burn these brake pads up. So fortunately, all of the other people were behind me. All the sh- camera crew, all the academy folks, and there happened to be a guy in the camera crew who used to drive Craig Morgan, the country singer's bus. So he knew that he could, you know, this this stands to make sense if you've ever driven a straight drive, a, a stick shift. You know that you don't have to use your brakes as much. You can let the gears slow the vehicle down. Well, the way you shift gears in this bus was like this electronic pad. I didn't know how it worked. I was afraid to do it. I was afraid I'd blow the transmission out of the thing too. But this camera guy knew exactly what he was doing. So I'm like, man, you're driving. You're driving this thing down a mountain the rest of the way and we'll call he was awesome. So he's driving this bus. Everything's okay. We've cooled the brakes down. We finally get to Fontana Dam. I plug the bus in. I plug up the shower. I plug up the water. Everything's cool. I get the jacks down, but it is blinking yellow at me still. And I'm like, man, I don't know about this. Let me just put the jacks up and try to move the bus to another location. Jacks won't come up. Jacks are stuck down. Well, you obviously can't drive the bus if the jacks are stuck down. The generator, because I had to run it in that field the entire time in Georgia, had completely drained every every ounce of energy out of those batteries. Jacks wouldn't come back up. I couldn't put the slides out. Air conditioner ain't working. We got a problem, Jack. I am freaking out now man so what's going through like the kids and laney's mind during this whole laney's very stressed out kids don't even know dude they're oblivious like they're not even at one point let's back up to to georgia when that trim blew off the side of the interior of, of wendell's bus i looked at the kids right then and i said guys look at daddy right now look me in my eyes you are not in trouble You have done nothing wrong, but daddy's about to yell a lot. This ain't about you. Don't take any offense. I'm about to go off just so I don't have a heart attack. And I lost my mind. But I I told the kids, this ain't about you. You're not in trouble. All good. So we get to, they're they're oblivious, dude. They don't know. They're having the time of their lives. Literally, they were having so much fun on this trip, on this adventure for them. So I am freaking out. Well, guess what? There's no cell phone service at all at this campground we're at in Tennessee. I mean, in, in North Carolina. Zero, none, no cell at all. 
there's some Wi-Fi, but it's not strong enough to like FaceTime or whatever. So Scott Smith, my buddy who runs the outdoors accounts at Academy, goes, come on, I'm driving you to the top of the mountain where maybe you'll get a cell signal. That's like 10 miles or 15 miles on our way up the mountain. I'm freaking, bro. You know me. Like when I when I get in my own head like this, my, my mind starts to race and thereby, thereby my anxiety builds and starts to create scenarios that aren't even real. You like everything just so, you, yeah. you know, and this is out of your control and it's a lot of it you don't have the ability to fix it without calling somebody. So I, I, I just wonder what it was like because I just I know what you're like. And so at least the kids were kind of in their own world. Thank God. So I, on our way up the mountain, probably not even a mile into our trek, Scott, who has this eagle eye, sees this sign at this bar that is closed for COVID, Wi-Fi hotspot. He drops on the brakes, slams on the brakes, spins this minivan around, and he goes, dude, look at that sign. So I walk over to the bar. There's like full bars. I FaceTime my neighbor Daniel who is Mr. RV, and he goes, dude, don't worry about it. He said, you're fine. The batteries are just dead. He said, you need to plug that thing in, and you need to leave it, and it might be a day before you're going to be okay, but it's going to be okay. So he's given me at least this solace, but we had to sleep in the RV without the slides out. It was a little bit tight. And the next morning I got up and we, before dawn, we had to go do the, the shoot the next morning out in the wilderness in, uh, in Bone Valley, which is what they call it out there in, uh, Western North Carolina and on the Fontana Lake, which what a gorgeous lake. I mean, I was out there at dawn in a canoe with this good old boy, Coy Adams. And he's telling me the history of the lake, the sun's coming up over the Smoky Mountain National Forest, and it's like one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. And we're having this great time. Well, we get back from the from the shoot, and it's the moment of truth with this bus. I'm like, all right, man. By grannies, I'm gonna this is gonna be the moment. This is the moment. And so I go over to the bus. And I noticed that I plugged in my phone, and my phone was charging, which is the first time that's happened in three days. That's a good sign. I turn on the bus. Everything is firing. The shades are going up and down electronically. I was able to use the push-button start on the bus instead of the key start. Everything's like money. I go to put the jacks up just to see. Those lights are still blinking. I'm like, son of a... So the camera guy, the guy who owns Sub7 uh, Production Company, which is the production third-party production company that I work with on these shoots for Academy, my boy Mark Womack goes, you know what you need to do, dude? How about this? He said, just pull the jacks up and put it on the pavement. There was a pavement road that led into the campground. Put it on the pavement and put the jacks down just to see if it's able to level itself. I move it over to the pavement. 
I put the jacks down, and sure as a day is long, baby, it's blinking green as grass. And my power hookup reached, and my water hookup reached from the pavement. So I was able to put the slides out. We had the best evening. We went back out on the water. Cameron went fishing with Coy Adams and his sons out. They, they have this property, 130 acres out there. Cameron went trout fishing with those boys and had the time of his life. Caught a couple fish, just had a blast. The girls and me, I took the girls and Laney fishing out on the lake and just had an absolute blast. We got this guy let us use his pontoon. We spent the day on the lake until the thunderstorms rolled in. And it was this beautiful day. And you know what I did after all of that? I I don't want to get preachy here, but I bowed my head and I said thank you. Because I had a partner in my wife who tolerated all that anxiety. I had a great friend in Wendell and his wife, Lindsay, who tolerated all of my anxiety. I had another great friend in Daniel, my neighbor, who gave me great solace that everything was going to be okay. And everything was okay. And all of the content we captured was utterly amazing. I had great friends on site who were not only able to help me, but opened their hearts and were willing to help me. It was just, it wound up being a great lesson. And... What an amazing time for my family. And the the funniest irony of it all, guess what Lainey and I started doing when we got home? So I was, I was research, just going to ask Researching this. RVs. I was going to say, when is your next trip? It's going to be very soon. RVing's fun if you know what you're doing. And Wendell, I just returned the bus to him on Saturday. It's currently, what, Tuesday? It is. I returned the bus to him on Saturday because it was the only window I knew I had. And this is funny. I forgot to tell you this part. After Marty and McGee, I already had the bus like meticulously cleaned, everything ready to go. Laney and I were able to repair all of the interior parts that were broken. You can't even tell they were broken. Everything was pristine in there. I go to crank the bus at like noon after Marty and McGee. Dead. Battery's dead. And it took us until 4 o'clock in the afternoon to charge it enough to crank the battery. How about that? It sounds was like ele- dead, man. Sounds like electricity was your biggest need and biggest problem during this whole thing. Dude, how about that story? I'm, y'all listening, I know it was long, and I'm sorry, but that was a therapy session for me. That was a therapy session. And any of y'all who've RV'd, you're probably laughing. Because now I feel like I've gone to RV Harvard, and there's almost nothing I can experience or any obstacle I can face that I haven't already faced and have a troubleshooting methodology in order to try to combat whatever the issue is. Will your next RV be the same size, or will you go down a little bit to make it at least a little easier? I think I like the body style. Wendell's RV is very, very nice. It's a it's a Freightliner chassis with a Thor body and instrumentation, and it's called a Venetian. It's a very nice motorhome. And so now we are spoiled. Like, we we are spoiled rotten with our RVing experience, man, because that thing's like a luxury hotel inside. It has three slides. 
So the entire living space opens up probably from, let's call it three feet wide, just wide enough to walk through it, to probably ten feet wide. And there's couches on either side. There is a full kitchen on one side. There's a master bedroom in the back with a full shower. The thing has a full refrigerator, not like a little old pissant refrigerator. It has a full refrigerator. Like the thing is sweet. And so Laney and I were laughing like, are we too up? Could we use like a regular RV or not? And, but you know, that's really our first experience. And so we were in, we were in, uh, the Ritz on our first ever experience. So can we go stay at the Motel 6? I don't know. Well, that's the worst thing. Whenever whenever you do something, you never want to start at the top or near the top because then if you drop down, you're like, well, this isn't fun. To be honest about us, we couldn't be more simple, though. We're extremely, like, simple people. Um, So I think we could handle whatever. But we sure did like what we had. So where's where would you take the next RV trip to? We have all these ideas now. I mean, if I get one, I can use it for work. If I had one right now, I could take it to Talladega this week. I could bring my kids. Um, if I had it during the fall, I could take it to Knoxville. Games when I'm in Tennessee. I could take it to Athens. Games when I'm in Georgia. I could take it to Clemson. I could take it to Blacksburg. There's so many places that are really close by that I, I could this- just... Can we get this RV sponsor on the outside and take the podcast and Marty McGee on the road? Right. And and even above that, man, like we're our minds have started to open up to we could take it to country music festivals. We could take it to chief shows. We could take it to Morgan Wallen shows or you know, Cole Swindell or Dirks or Luke Holmes or whoever. And and park that thing, man. How that that's awesome, and that's the best thing is that you, especially at a concert afterwards, if you don't have to leave, you, you can just get in the RV right. and sleep, sleep, exactly, wake man. up in the morning, and you don't have to worry about. You have everything you need right there, man. You got your food, you got your bathroom, you got your shower, you got whatever you need is right there at your disposal, and and you don't have to go anywhere like you to your point man if you have a couple too many you don't have to be like well can i get an uber can i get a cab can i will somebody give me a lift is there a, you know this that or the other you walk back to your bus and you fall face first into the bed what's better than that i uh, i think it needs to happen yeah well if laney will if laney will sign off on it i'm oh dude it was her idea there you go laney's got the ideas it. Now she didn't love my attitude, but she loved she loved the RV experience. She just didn't, you know. My attitude was a little sour. I wish I, was, I wish we could have had her on to to get her take during all these uh, her, mental breakdowns. I told her we needed her perspective on this, and she did not. She was not interested in being on the Marty Smith America podcast one bit. Because she's not interested in the podcast. We we've made that known. She she's cared about like three of our interviews. That's right. We she if I get the bachelor on, if I get like Jordan Rogers on, and if I get um I don't Patrick know. Patrick Dempsey. Patrick Dempsey, she loved that one. Yeah. Yeah, right. If it's if it's McDreamy and it's uh and it's the bachelor, 
She's in. If we get a survivor contestant, she'll be Tory, all in. If we get Tori Birch on, you know, one of those people. Travis and I had the great blessing of doing the Masters official podcast, and we had Tori Birch on, and the Lanester listened to that one now. Actually, she listened. I, I tell you what, dude. Laney listened to every single one of our Masters podcasts. Every one of them. Well, that, that's, she put her, uh, her captain hat on so that she could give feedback. Speaking of captain hats, you know what? So my buddy Tony Yenichek, he wears like a boating captain hat while he drives his RV. And I thought, you know what I need to drive if I get an RV? I'm, I have like some, I have awesome cowboy hats, by the way. I have an awesome Charlie One Horse black cowboy hat. I don't know the material, whether it's suede or it's some fancy material cowboy hat that the Texas Motor Speedway sent me because they give the race winner a cowboy hat and some six shooters. And so I have that cowboy hat. I have a Richard Petty cowboy hat. I have a this cowboy hat right beside me. Jason Aldean wears this specific cowboy hat, and his PR people sent me one one time, and it's sitting right beside me. Don't you think that if I get an RV and I'm driving that RV down the road, I should be wearing that cowboy hat? I think so. I've never seen. I don't think I've ever seen you wear a cowboy hat. You wear lots of hats, but I've never seen you with a cowboy hat on before. I don't think. Well, I think probably the art for the Marty Smith's America podcast RV Cousin Eddie edition. Should be me wearing a cowboy. I'll send you a photo that you can use. Yeah, but I think that needs to be your driving hat. I mean, I do too. I don't think there's any doubt. I think we might have one. There might be some opposition to this in the form of my far better half. I think Team Laney might disagree with this, but she might just get overruled. She might just get overruled on this. So that's uh, that's the RV story, y'all. That's the unabridged version. And hopefully at least five or six of y'all are still hanging around to listen to our interview uh, this interview is amazing, and as I said off the top, former Ohio State Buckeyes legend, Heisman Trophy winner, uh, had a tremendous NFL career, almost won a Super Bowl. You'll hear Eddie George discuss how he carries that moment with him. I was moved by this podcast. Travis was moved by the podcast. Eddie was so vulnerable with us, and y'all are going to love this. So here is our conversation on Marty Smith's America with Eddie George. And just a heads up for those that are actually still listening through the 40-minute RV story. This interview was taped weeks ago before talk on racial equality started, so that's why there isn't any mention of that in this interview. Guys, this man's Twitter bio says this. NFL legend, Heisman Trophy winner, actor, speaker, entrepreneur, yogi, and Renaissance man. I mean, you kidding me? And the fact that it's all true, that's not made up. Eddie George, what, what about your journey to this point in your path are you proudest of? Wow. Oh, uh, man. Um, I just wanted to ask me a question like this just the other day. Uh, not framed this way, but I, I, I would have to say making the decision to Live, be my authentic self. I, I can sit up here and talk about my football days. I can talk about things I've done in business and or as an actor being on Broadway and so forth. I think I'm most proud of just taking the chance and not being afraid to to fail, being afraid to be laughed at, 
but really following my heart's passion and seeing what's on the other side of that. And she's taking a chance at doing something different and uh, in terms of telling stories in the medium of theater or um, through the camera lens, trying out different businesses. It's just, just really having been open-minded to all the possibilities of, of what God has planned for me. So that's, that's the thing I'm most proud of, I guess, in the sense that I'm willing and open to take a chance um, if it feels right. It's a calculated risk, <laughs> you know. So sure. that's kind of uh, that's 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 what it is, and, that, and that's an everyday uh, that's an everyday decision. That's that, that's nothing like well, I made this decision five years ago is sustainable. No, you're you're presented with that every single day you wake up. It's who you choose to be, how you choose to operate, and who you want to become consistently, moment to moment. You know, every minute of the day. So, so that's that's what uh, that's what I try to try to do. So, yeah, that's so cool, because the reason that you feel that way is that you made yourself vulnerable. And it's very difficult as a man to make yourself that vulnerable, because when you do make yourself that vulnerable, you have to be okay with whatever energy comes back from that vulnerability from the outside. And absolutely. Yeah, and that's not an easy thing to reconcile in your own mind. What what was the challenge for you to find and project that authentic self? Breaking through the idea of what was next for me in terms of my life after I finished playing the game of football, was searching for really who I was in this life. Uh, I, I knew I wasn't just was born just to play football and die. You know, it was something else on the other side of that. And um, I had to really delve into who I was, you know, and and for for that reason, I had to seek out counseling um, to help guide me through that. There was no there's no book written on how you transition from one passion and find out your next passion. There was no blueprint on it. There was no there's no manual. And it's not a, a, a linear process. It's cylindrical. It's going to your your church. It's going to the sweat lodge. It's going to a, a yoga practice. It's sitting back and just spending time with your wife or your, your loved ones. It's it's all of that, and it's constant. So, and and I had to be real with my, where I was, who I was, and how I was feeling, and not mask that because if I suppress those feelings and and mask it and, and say I'm okay. And when I'm really not, it eats you on the inside. So as long as I bring those those true feelings to the surface and I say, okay, I'm thinking this way, I'm feeling this way, I'm looking at it in space, okay, is it serving me at this point? Are these things true? And they aren't, just let it go and, and move on. So um, I've had to learn to really be, be vulnerable in that sense based off of my, my life's experiences. Speaking of vulnerability, let's shift over quickly to – COVID-19 and everything so many are experiencing right now, and that includes your father, who actually contracted mm-hmm. COVID-19. How's your dad doing, Eddie? He's doing great. Today is his 70th birthday, so awesome. I'll be calling him shortly as I get the phone with you. So that's that's a blessing right there. So he's doing much better. Um, about, uh, about four weeks ago, three, four weeks ago, he contracted the disease. He's uh, in an assistant living facility just outside of Philadelphia. and um, yeah, they tested him. He tested positive. They had to quarantine him. I uh, wasn't able to talk to him at that particular time. I was getting a lot of correspondence to my, my uncle who lives there. 
Um, but I was happy to hear um, that he ordered a, a cheeseburger with, with fried onions and ketchup. <laughs> and, and I was like, okay, he's back. He's good to go. <laughs> you know, so he's out of that situation now. He's out of quarantine and he's, he's, um, he's had some other health underlying health issues, but he's doing a lot better now. I read a piece about your relationship with him and how everything you did on the football field was basically to please him. And man, yeah. can I relate to that basic desire as a young man yeah. to earn your father's favor? How did that drive you, yeah. your need for his affirmation? Oh, it was everything. It's the very reason I played the game of football. It's a game that he loved. He wanted to play college football. He wanted to play professional football. Um, didn't have that opportunity. He succumbed to the, the demons of, of his life in the streets. Um, he was um, a drug abuser. You know, he was a hurt individual, and, and I and I sympathize with that. Um, and I wanted to change the rhetoric around my father's name, you know, and how he was viewed. And there was a point in time where I was ashamed because of his behavior. I was ashamed of my father. But I wanted to honor him and, and show him that, hey, you know what? I'm going to go out here and take your dream that you wanted for yourself and make you proud, to, make, to let you know that you've done something positive in this life, that, that you're not a failure, you're not this. So I wanted my father to know that he um, was successful. And um, I took on his dream and I carried it. I wanted him to be proud of that. I wanted him to be proud of something in his life um, that he produced. You know, I come from his fruit and I wanted to, to, to make sure that. And I, and, um, I was hoping that through the game of football and through my success, that would drive him to be clean. And uh, it did on some levels. And uh, my father wasn't always there in my life, um, especially during my, my teenage years. But what he gave me in terms of an example of what not to do, I'm, I'm appreciative of that. My father, when I think back on my life, he, he really tried. He really tried. You know, he took me to football games. He took me to the movies. And when we would have our conversations, he would always tell me about prayer and the power of prayer and how to trust God, how to forgive and so forth. And just those little moments have meant so much to me now as, uh, as I'm raising my own children that my father didn't need to be there, you know, 24-7, uh, 365 when he was present with me during those moments. However long it was, he was totally present with me. He wasn't just there physically. So that, that meant a lot to me as, as now that as I've gotten older. I love that. With age comes perspective. And yes, what's it like to carry the weight of that as a young man? Well, I had to leave the neighborhood mm -hmm. uh, for that, in order for that to happen. Um, because I was starting to become a product of the neighborhood at the, uh, at the age of 15, 16 years old to realize that I went to a military school in Virginia, uh, Fort King Military Academy. And it was there that I was able to uh, see a different side of life and see the possibilities and to see my dreams realized that everything that I needed was right there in front of me. And I had to take advantage of that. I had to change my perspective on that. I embraced it. I embraced carrying the weed. I, it was a wonderful challenge for me because uh, I was fighting for something far deeper than just being the greatest football player. I was fighting for my father's legacy. I was fighting for his name. I was fighting for our name, the George name. And to change from that point on, 
how that name is going to be viewed, you know. Uh, so it, it was it was an honor and a privilege um, to to go through that. I, I never looked at it as something that was um, as a weight or a hindrance or something that I backed down from. It was a tremendous challenge and something that I've embraced and continue to try to uh, to mold and develop through my own sons and, and, and what I'm doing now in my life. I love it. You didn't know you were going to therapy this morning, did you, brother? Man, <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> I didn't know we were going to get this deep. <laughs> I, uh, but we're here. I, we're I, here, though. <laughs> we came right out of the gate with it. You know, you're a financial expert, and we'll get into how and why and all of that in a moment. But as it pertains to what we're experiencing with the coronavirus pandemic, how do you, as someone who understands finances that this well, define the impact of this pandemic on the global economy? Well, I'll say that I'm not an expert. <laughs> you know, I am in that field. Um, I do pay attention. Um, it's it's impacted our economy greatly. In the world, we see it. You know, it's impacted sports. You know, um, those if the NBA doesn't play this year, they're going to lose something north of $4 billion in revenue. Um, it's going to impact college sports and so forth. It's impacting everybody. Uh, small businesses, you know, um, uh, the, the PPP program, the payroll protection program is there for, to help all businesses and restaurants and so forth. And that has stacked, that has snags and, uh, some hiccups in it. So they're trying to work through that. So it was affecting, um, anybody that doesn't, that had to go to work physically. It affected me personally, you know, with speaking engagements and appearances and, uh, and roles and things I have to do. So it's, uh, it's a huge deal, but, it's an opportunity to recalibrate, to think differently about your business. Um, Zoom has been huge. That's been a stock that's shot through the roof because of the the, the, the virtual uh, meetings. Um, it's really helped out uh, some businesses in terms of me. I don't have to travel as much. I can say, oh, my gosh, I can sit here and talk with potential clients uh, through Zoom, engage with them in a way that's more – uh, intimate than rather than sending um, some some forms or um, uh, our, our, our our results in terms of their the portfolio to them. Um, so it's it's been it's been eye opening. It's been um, a great way to uh, figure out business in a new way and to really become appreciative of the, of the fact that hey, you know, I am working. And sometimes you can you know get so into the, the weeds of I'm working day to day and, and it, it becomes a, a drag and you're complaining that, man, you know what, it's okay that I have a job or a few jobs and I'm tired here and there. Uh, it's a true blessing. So um, that's what I would say in terms of, of where we are in the, in the economy and so forth is that we will bounce back um, once we get our handle on the COVID situation and once there's a vaccine in place and so forth is just in the short term and how long, how people are going to survive, you know, over the next six months and how that impacts you for the next year or so in terms of business and the economy and so forth. But what I'm seeing in the news in terms of the, the stock market is starting to stabilize. It's starting to respond in, in a great way to uh, all the things that are surrounding COVID-19 and how sports starting to reopen and so forth. So I'm, I'm, I'm rather optimistic about the economy uh, and I'm bullish on the future for, for, uh, for our economy. 
Love it. Let's jump to Columbus, Ohio, sir. Okay, let's do it. Illinois game. You had a tough one that day. Mm. What do you remember about that? What do you remember about that day, and what did you learn from that experience? Oh, I remember it was our first home game uh, in the Big Ten against, uh, back then, our second biggest rival. Our first rival, of course, is always going to be that team up north. But Illinois back then was a problem for us. They had a really good defense. Lou Temper was the head coach, and he was a tough-minded coach. He had some tough teams, uh, and they prided themselves on having a great defense. Um, they didn't score a whole lot, but they were going to intimidate you with their linebackers, Kevin Hardy and Simeon Rice and uh, Dana Howard, uh, Holacek. I mean, those were some bad boys back in the day. So they come into Columbus, and they made a statement that, hey, we own a lease on Columbus in, in, in Ohio Stadium. You know, we go down there, we have great success. So I remember it being a little chippy in the beginning of the game. And... Um, um, I uh, went out on my first drive of the game. Everyone's excited. I'm coming off of a, um, some road success. I had three touchdowns two weeks prior to that game against uh, Syracuse up there. We're coming off a loss against Wisconsin, so we're kind of thieving it up and out. So I go out there um, for my for the first carry of, uh, in a goal line situation. I fumbled the ball, and they t- returned it 97 yards for a touchdown. And I, I immediately – understood that, man, gosh, now the 100,000 fans that were cheering my name, Eddie, are now booing me. That feels horrible. I've got to redeem myself. So the game goes on. I wind up scoring another touchdown, and I'm feeling good about myself. And I'm like, okay, I got that off me. You know, I can move forward. So the game's going back and forth, nip and tuck, you know, goes down, gets down to uh, the last quarter. We're driving, and um, we uh, – our first and goal at, um, uh, at, the, at the Illinois five-yard line. And it was a tall sweep to me going out to my left. I take the pitch, and I go inside to try to cut it for a touchdown, and I fumble again. And they recover it. The game was over. And just the feeling of failure, of being exposed, of being going back to vulnerable, I cried. I felt like my career was over. I felt like I let the team down. I let the, the Buckeyes down. I let the seniors down. Kirk Herbstreit was our quarterback, and he was a hell of a leader. He was our captain. And all he talked about was going to the Rose Bowl. And that game, when we lost against Illinois, almost put us, took us out of contention for the Rose Bowl. So I felt like, I felt like crap. And um, I didn't see the game. I didn't see the field the rest of that year. But that's the day. During that moment, that's when I won the Heisman because I had a chance to – I had an opportunity to leave Ohio State to go somewhere else to um, avoid the naysayers, avoid the negative talk, you know, me being the worst running back to come to Ohio State history and all of that, uh, being teased about having butterfingers and so forth. I I committed to working out harder. Uh, I was going to redeem myself of that mistake, and when I had my opportunity, again, whenever that came around, I was going to be more than ready. And that's that's why I like to say that day was a blessing to me because it exposed in me. It took me to another level in terms of my work ethic, in terms of how much deeper I had to dig down to, to find uh, the energy to overcome uh, my adversities, to, to face my demons, to face the devil, if you will, 
and pursue a dream that that I was going to um, fill my that name in terms of my father. It always comes back full circle to my dad. <laughs> so um, that was all being tested at that point in time. So I had to dig deep for that. I had to fight for that. You note the Heisman. Uh, that senior year, Eddie, was historic. You know, 1,900 yards, Heisman, Walter Camp, Doak, Big Ten MVP, Offensive Player of the Year, First Team All-American, you name it, you won it. All that results in your jersey being retired at Ohio State. How do you describe that season now, a quarter century later? Oh, wow, we're such a special team. The team, it wasn't, it wasn't me. That award represents our era of, of players. Uh, it was uh, Chico Nelson, who's no longer with us. It was Roger Harper, Raymond Harris, Butler Bonote, the, the upperclassmen who showed me how to work. Robert Smith, I agree over a great deal of respect to Robert Smith because he really showed me how to work on that level. It was uh, Orlando Pace on our team that year, Ricky Dudley, the late Terry Glenn, Bobby Hoyne, Michael Vrabel, uh, Luke Fickle, Sean Spring. So talent-wise. Man, dudes uh, everywhere. Yeah, we had dudes everywhere. Joey Galloway was on our team years prior. So I I look at that entire, for my entire four years, that was, that represented us. And, And that was our team success, you know, as a whole, the culture. So, for me, it was a combination of all of that, of the hard work and the dedication. But it was a remarkable experience to go through that year and to not have won a, a national title uh, to cap that off uh, hurts me to this day. That's the only thing that I wish we could have done was won a Big Ten championship more because we had the talent there. We had everything we needed. I wish we would have won uh, more of a team uh, award in terms of a national championship or another Big Ten championship or a Rose Bowl um, would have been beautiful. But I, I, that era um, definitely was was it represented the Heisman. I was just the recipient of that, and I'm just the ambassador for for all those guys that I speak about because they all made me better in terms of being a better athlete, a better player, and, and my work ethic and so forth. What's your perspective on the current college football landscape with the playoff and the way championships are decided i love it i love the fact that you can now have a champion decided on the field both versus the old system where you voted on a winner um it, like the like teams of like 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 the 1994 penn state Nittany lions they were undefeated uh they annihilated everyone in their path we were a part of that process we're part of that whole deal um, they did not win a national championship. They did not get a share of it. And I think now um, you get the top four teams. Uh, some people say that's the right number. Uh, some people think it should be expanded to eight or, or, or six teams. I believe that, you know, when you can allow the players to have it on the field, to decide on the field, it's, it's great. I love what college football is right now. It's at an all-time high. And to have the, the top four teams going at it just adds more to an already a special um, uh, season or a special uh, college football in, in general is just so special uh, with the pageantry and the history and the rivalries and you're able to see uh, matchups that you wouldn't necessarily have a chance to see during the course of the season. So I, I love where college football is right now and where it's going. My only fear is that in order to expand, you have to lengthen the season. And I think they I, I almost don't like that because when you get into 16, 17 games, you're mimicking 
the NFL season, I think that's too much on the physical body for for athletes. So I think they may have to shorten or take out a few of those those games um, uh, of the of the the lower tier um, uh, schools, unfortunately. But I think in terms of getting in those primetime matchups and um, uh, and expanding the field, they want to have to do something of, of contracting or taking away um, from some of the smaller schools and allowing the, the power fives, unfortunately, to, to go at it. How did you react when your Heisman came out of that x-ray machine? Oh, my God. Oh, you have to bring that up, Mark. I, I was <laughs> lizard, man. I was – it's like it's like when you get your – it's like when you get your favorite toy on Christmas and you just open up the box and you're playing with it, and after the second hour it breaks – and there are no more toys on the shelf. And it's like, it's all going, that's the only one. That's kind of how I felt when I got my Heisman. I was fresh. You know, they gave me the option to say, you can fly with it home or we can send it to you. Said, but they said most of our what past winners, you know, they, they took it with them. I said, why not? You know, who else could say they had a Heisman and people can see my award? So I take the award to um, LaGuardia and uh, – and we're approaching the TSA check and x-ray machine and so forth. And I have my trophy in my arms and I'm holding it, you know, with both arms gracefully saying, Hey, here's my Johnny Heisman. And, and uh, I'm expecting the the security guard to, to, to say, uh, Oh, that's, congratulations. You know, here, I'll take your, your trophy through. I, yeah. You know, whatever. No, he looks at me and, kind of just like whatever like no it has to go on the um through the x-ray machine and i'm like no i mean it, it, it's not it's not going to fit you can see it's just not going to fit in there he says no you have to put it on there or you have to, to check it in or whatever so after um going back and forth for about five to six minutes finally our, our sid uh steve snap says eddie just put it on there and we'll, we'll just deal with it when, when we get through so I go through the x-ray machine and I get scanned and all of that. I come through and I'm waiting for my trophy to come out and um, it's not coming. It stops. The conveyor belt stops. And then he says, uh, okay, try to reverse it. Doesn't move. And he says, or push it forward again. It doesn't move. So then he reaches inside grabs the trophy by the leg. He says, all right, I'm going to give it some momentum. So put it in, put it forward. So he's pulling it forward. They try to reverse it, and then they're pulling on it. So about 10 minutes of this going back and forth, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm just cringing at what's going on in there. So he finally gets, like, some uh, some type of lubricant, puts it at the top to help bring it through, and he pulls it out, finally gets it out. And the index finger on it is bent back towards his face, and I'm like, well, who's going to pay for this? <laughs> and uh, he just kind of rolled his eyes and says, well, uh, you know, you, you have to do what you have to do. But, you know, to say the least, um, I became a Jeopardy question on the, the, the one Heisman tra- Trophy player, winner that broke his, uh, his his trophy. So that's uh, what I'm known for with that whole I, I, that whole idea. I should have kept it, but they gave me a new one. We're going to get to the NFL in just a second. I know I've already kept you way too long, but I do. Oh, no, you're fine. We're good, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, when was the last time that you said the word Michigan? It, well, I, we have a thing in my house. We don't. We can. We don't say that here. 
my youngest son is, a, is an avid Buckeye fan. And over the years, I've kind of loosened up and said, okay, I, I got to be Detroit, you know, and whatever. But I, I, I don't, I, I'm very conscious of, of saying it because it's still very much in my blood. Uh, you know, I, I, it, it never goes away. And every year, um, I'm reminded uh, right around that time when we played that team up north from the guys like Charles Woodson or Monty Toomer, what they did to us in the 90s. And that's what they have to go off of at this point in time. They have no recent success against us. Let's talk about the years in the 90s and, and where they are. But um, I, I, don't, I don't say that word too much. What was the most memorable moment of your Ohio State experience? Oh, wow. I would say there's been a couple of them. Playing uh, Notre Dame um, in 1995. Um, having Lou Holtz in our stadium um, for the first time in Notre Dame, the Fighting Irish, for the first time since then in 45 years, I, I want to say. That's the last time Ohio State and Notre Dame played prior to the 95 season. Um, that was that was a, a big win for us. Uh, playing Washington, University of Washington in 1992. Uh, they were coming off of a national championship year. They were highly touted. They, they had the reputation of being – uh, the dogs and uh, great defenses, hard-hitting safeties and so forth, beating them at night with Big Daddy Wilkinson. And, and that's when we really felt like we could have been be a really good football team. We wound up going 10-1 uh, uh, and one, 10 one that year. Um, and I would have to say uh, beating Michigan. Oh, geez, I said it. Beating, oh. <laughs> Put it on beating the board. Beating a team up north. <laughs> beating <laughs> a team up north. Um, um, in 1994, um, was a big win for us too. The, the fans rushed the fields. First time we beat that team up north. Um, the first time in seven years since that time. So, those are my. Those are definitely some highlights. Uh, some of the highlights I've had at Ohio State. Houston Oilers powder blue jerseys, greatest uniform Oof. ever. Greatest <laughs> uniform ever, man. Certainly, you know what, man. I, they were vastly underrated. I think. I, I mean, I used to. I guess since I wore it so much, I was like, ah, they're okay. They're right there with the Chargers. I love the Chargers uniform. Love the Raiders. Uh, Miami Dolphins, they have some amazing uniforms as well. But those those powder blue jerseys, Houston Oilers were, were pretty special. They were really special. Love them. Love your blue. That, that was the model for from Houston back in the day. I love those things. They're my favorite jersey ever. Uh, what's your proudest achievement as a professional? Ah oh, man, I, my proudest achievement is go is winning is going to the uh, Super Bowl um, in 1999. Uh, prior to us moving from Houston to Tennessee, that whole debacle, the move, being in Memphis, playing in Memphis, playing in Vanderbilt, uh, playing in front of 16,000 fans during a time known as the Vega Bond team, nobody watched us. weren't We weren't on TV. Um, it was it was just difficult to to really stay focused during that time. That was a really tough era for for us, and um, and to finally become the Tennessee Titans in '99, having the uniforms, the, the stadium. It was just Nashville was just on fire. I mean, it was standing room only for preseason games, and just the feeling like, man, this is what the NFL feels like. This is what support feels like. This is what what a home field advantage truly is um, was remarkable. And for us to have that magical year 
uh, winning every home game in that stadium, uh, to have the Music City Miracle against the Buffalo Bills, um, to have going up to Indianapolis beating uh, Peyton Manning and the Indianapolis Colts, um, then beating Jacksonville for a third time in Jacksonville, and the, the fall just shy of a yard of tying the Rams in Super Bowl 34 was, was special. And that was a special team. And it was great men on that football team. Um, although we didn't win the the Super Bowl, we still felt like we've accomplished something because we overcame so much. And it was just nothing but love that we had for one another, respect for one another. Those are my brothers to this day. So I would say that's the number one thing. That team was really special in 99. How often do you think about that last play of Super Bowl 34? I think about it a lot. I think about how life would be different as a Super Bowl champion or a possible Super Bowl champion. Um, I think about the confetti. That's the one thing that I noticed once the clock struck zero was the confetti coming out of the sky. And it was blue and yellow. And it wasn't white and blue like the Titans. You couldn't have told me that night that I wasn't going to hold the trophy up. I could see it in my mind. I could feel the trophy in my hands. I could feel the angles of the trophy. I could see the smiles of my teammates. I could hear our fans screaming. Um, I could see the parade that we were going to have um, down Broadway and in Nashville, Tennessee, bringing the trophy back to Nashville. And you, you couldn't convince me otherwise. So, you know, once once that happened, all I could think about was just the confetti flying and just being in the midst of that. And uh, I think about, you know, what could have happened. Could we have won going back to back? Could we have won, you know, three? I don't know. Could we have been a dynasty? Um, but I I will forever not have those, those questions answered because of what happened there that night. And I will never have a chance to win as a player a Super Bowl. So, yeah, I do think about it often. What should folks who never knew Steve McNair know about him? Steve, Steve was a just a, a wonderful, loving human being who would give you, who would give the shirt off his back for you. He would uh, sacrifice his body for he sacrificed his body for a team. Uh, loved his family was a hell of a, of a, of a cook, he could, could barbecue, man. The man could throw down on the grill, um, loved the fish. And he was just a country boy who just loved life. Um, this is a tremendous athlete. And uh, um, this is an awesome teammate to be around. Just full of life, had this unique laugh, this funny laugh <laughs> that, that, this, this, uh, that you just know was Steve. Um, and uh, just a wonderful human being, and uh, just was kind to everyone. Steve was the type of guy that you would, you could see him at, at a local uh, wing spot in the corner somewhere eating wings at the bar, watching a baseball game. And it's Steve McNair. You know, no entourage. It was nothing like that. Nothing fancy about him. Wasn't trying to big time anybody. Or I mean, he he knew people by their first name in our community outside of the Tennessee Titans. And, and that's what he was. He was approachable. He was um, he was just a, a down-to-earth person who would have a conversation with anybody. He would love to he would please everybody. 
know, you'll take a picture with you, sign an autograph for you. I mean, he was just that type of guy, man. And, um, you know, I, I think about him um, almost every day as he was a wonderful teammate to have. How did you learn about his passing and, and what impact did mm. that have on you? Well, I was in Atlanta with my wife. My wife is a singer. She had a show in Atlanta and it was 4th of July. Um, and we had these plans and we were driving back. We were going to have, we had plans of barbecue and my youngest son, family and so forth. And we're about uh hour and a half out of Nashville and it was not a cloud in the sky. It was hot, hot summer day. And we're driving in and I get a phone call from a friend of mine saying, Steve got shot in a fight at a bar. And I'm like, that's crazy. Steve, first of all, doesn't go out excuse me, doesn't go out to a club and who the hell's gonna shoot Steve McNair? And that's insane. I said, That's just nonsense. So I get a second call from somebody from the police department. A friend of mine saying, he says, Ed, you know, um, I'm hearing some things. I'm down here at the scene um, where uh, they're saying Steve is, is, is in this, in this uh, apartment and he's, he's dead. And I'm like, what? And he says, that's not it. There's another body in there. And I was like, oh, I'm thinking, you know, it could be his wife. Um, I don't know what, what's going on. So I'm like, okay, it, there, there has to be something more to this. So I said, if if I call Jeff Fisher, if he has an inkling about this, or he doesn't know, we talk to Steve, then I'll, I'll find out for sure. He'll know something. So I called Jeff, and Jeff was over in uh, Afghanistan uh, at the time, and he said, Steve, Steve. I said, no, it's his Eddie. And then when he said that, I said, oh, there, there might be something to this. And then shortly thereafter, it was confirmed that Steve um, was was murdered along with uh, the young lady. Um, and, uh, and it was true. And from that moment on, it was, uh, it was just, just silence and, and not, not believing it. I, I went directly to, to Michelle's house to be with her son and her family. And it was just so surreal that, um, we were talking about Steve dying and the impact it left on me, um, was I hate the fact that Steve didn't have a chance to be there this year to have his number retired along with me at the ceremony to see his sons and see what his sons are becoming as men. Um, it, uh, it, it really hurts me that he couldn't be here physically um, for that. But I, I, I look at, his life and I'm inspired by what he gave me in terms of being resilient, being staying persistent to really focus on the things that matter. And that's being a family, being with your family, loving your children, loving your wife, um, and loving your community. You know, much like we are now in COVID-19 being grounded that we're, we're surrounded by our loved ones. And, and that's what really matters. That's what truly matters. Uh, but I, I still dream about Steve. I still dream about us being in the locker room, having a conversation and, and talking and, uh, you know, him, you know, giving me inspiring words. And it's, it's crazy, you know, just the impact that he's, he's left on my life and uh, how I still, I still to this day uh, think about him. Who taught you what it is to be an NFL professional? Oh, uh, 
Um, there were a couple guys in our locker room that I that I would look at. Uh, Bruce Matthews was 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 the was the chief, and uh, because he's an elder statesman, he's been there since I guess since uh, <laughs> since the Houston Oilers were around. <laughs> he was 19 years or 20 years in or 15 years in when I first got there, and uh, Bruce really showed us how to work, how to be professional. Chris Dishman uh, for me. Um, Steve Jackson, Michael Burrow, um, those guys really showed me what it was like to be a professional. But then I would look at guys like Emmett Smith, um, Barry Sanders, uh, Jerry Rice, uh, Michael Urban, Deion Sanders, how they approached the game, how they uh, took it seriously. It wasn't just showing up the, to, to every Sunday. You know, those guys got down and dirty at, at, at practice. And, and that's where the magic happened in practice when you challenge one another. So that's that's kind of where I, I learned um, how to be professional by going to the Pro Bowl and talking to guys like Jerome Bettis, talking about his off-season program, Marshall Falk, you know, just taking bits and pieces from every person that I came across and trying to understand their process, how they worked, um, and um, how they became better, how they worked on their craft. That's That's what I tried to do. You were a workhorse, Eddie. How did all those carries impact your body and your production? <laughs> uh, I embraced it. I, I love getting the football. Uh, and, you know, I played early in my career. We really didn't have much of the passing attack. It was pretty much run the football and play great defense and throw it to our tight end. Um, but to this day, um, I, my body feels pretty good. I just had uh, my knee scoped. I had two um, golf ball-sized bone spurs in my right knee. One was fraying my ACL, so I had to get that out. And, but for the most part, uh, my body feels pretty good. I try to swim every um, three days a week, do my yoga, uh, do some stretching, play golf, to stay active. Because uh, once you stop, that's when when you stop being active, that's when the wheels fall off. That's when it all kind of goes down the drain. So um, I, I've always made sure that I'm doing something um, physically uh, speaking and, and making sure I'm taking care of my body. But for the most part, I feel pretty good. We began this thing by discussing your amazing resume. And before I get you out of here, I do want to discuss Broadway. And that amazing experience and opportunity. Yeah. Two questions there. First, how did an opportunity like that unfold? Well, um, it, it came about because I was um, studying with the, um, an acting coach uh, 13 years prior to that, that opportunity. I want to stop playing. I said, well, let me, you know, I want to, I'm interested in acting. Um, I, I was getting some opportunities to audition. I, I, I sucked. I had no idea what I was doing. And I said, well, if I'm going to do it, let me do it right. Let me learn how to to be vulnerable. Let me learn how to tell the truth in imaginary circumstances. And um, I did just that. I worked with relentlessly with an acting coach, Anna Maria Frangella, who's, longer, who's no longer with us. Um, she passed away a couple years ago. I worked with her three days a week. Uh, for, you know, 10 years uh, prior to that. Wow. And um, I did I did some things in the Nashville community. Um, I did Shakespeare, did a few other plays. I did uh, Julius Caesar. 
uh, a raisin in the sun, um, uh, the whipping man, uh, did a whole bunch of other, uh, uh, things prior to Broadway. And while I was training, I was taking singing lessons to help my speaking voice. And she realized that, heck, you can sing, you know, and one of the few songs that we practiced was all I care about is love. And she's always used to say, Eddie, you would make a great Billy Flynn. You would make a great Billy Flynn on Broadway. You could do it. And I was like, I don't know all about that. Let's just do the lesson to go over there. <laughs> so it was, um, it was in, I think, 2015 or somewhere around that time. Um, Chicago, the musical, came to Nashville. And at that particular time, I was getting ready to do this production called The Whipping Man. And it, it it really required me to go deep and dark, and, and it was just very emotionally and spiritually draining. I wanted to see something fun and light. So I went and took my wife to see Chicago. And I was familiar with it with Richard Gere, being watching in the movie and all of that. And I'm sitting in the audience, and I'm seeing the, the, the production of this. I'm like, man, that looks like a lot of fun. It's a lot of moving parts to it. You got to thing, you got to act, you got to do a few dance moves, but it looked like he was having a ball. And I was like, man, one day I want to play that role. And the president of TPAC heard me say that, and she was like, oh, really? And can you sing? And I was like, yeah, I can sing. I took some singing lessons. <laughs> you know, it's actually so you figure it out, you know, when you get there. He says, okay, well, I'll hold you to that. I'll make a few phone calls, and I'll get you an opportunity to uh, audition for Billy Flynn, I know a few people. And when I hear that, I'm like, yeah, okay, right, fine. Yeah, you do that. Get back with me. And lo and behold, two weeks later, she calls me back and was like, Eddie, I talked to the main producers of Chicago and New York, and they're interested in you coming up to audition for the role of Billy Flynn. And I'm like, seriously? She said, seriously. <laughs> so I said, all right, well, um, let me see what I can do. She says, well, when, when is it? She says, in the next couple of weeks. And granted, I had to take a singing lesson in about, you know, four or five months. And I'm like, oh, okay, I can get it done. And I hang up the phone. I'm like, oh, my God. Okay, I have this huge opportunity to go audition, but I don't think I'm ready. So I prepared the songs, got my voice ready and all of that. And I go up there in 2015, November 2015, and I said, okay, if I'm going to go out here and do this, I've got to go out swinging. So I put on my best suit. I put on a three-piece suit. I got my uh, fedora on. I'm going to be Billy Flynn when I walk in through these doors. So I go to New York. I go down 42nd Street. I go into uh, the theater, the Ambassador Theater, and I walk down through the bowels of the theater, through the, the side door. And, it's, and I'm like in, in awe. And I played in some great venues around the world, around the country and Ohio Stadium and Michigan Stadium and um, against the Ravens and the Black Hole. You know, those were intimidating places. And I walk into this theater, the Ambassador Theater, and I'm like extremely intimidated because Usher was on this stage. And I'm thinking of all these great actors that played this role were on this small stage and I'm intimidated. And I'm thinking, oh my God, why did I do this? Why am I here? And so just like any professional, the piano player comes out, he puts his, uh, his score on the piano, he's warming up, and I'm standing there. He was like, okay, Mr. George, we're going to start from the top. We're going to start with all I care about is love. What key do you need? And I'm like, a key? <laughs> he says, yes, what, what key are you in? And I was like, just pick one. <laughs> you 
know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so we we figure out my key because prior to that I was doing everything off the the CD that was mimicking what Richard Gere was doing mm-hmm. on on the on the uh, soundtrack. So I blurt out my my notes. We go through it. We sing. I go through my slides, the acting pieces, the acting coach, and nobody's in the audience. Nobody's there. It's me, the piano player, and the people within the production. And so after about an hour of going through all of this, I hear this clapping, this small clap, and this guy's walking down the aisle. And it's the lead producer of the show. Mm. And he says, oh, my God, that was fantastic. Let's do it. He said, let's do it. He said, yes, we're going to bring you to Broadway. My people will get in touch with your people. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to be on Broadway, right? <laughs> so he said that it was November. I didn't hear from that man until the following September of 2016. <laughs> so I thought he was telling me, oh, he was cute and all, but we're not going to use that guy. But, and that's how it all came about. And uh, I, I just did a lot of risk. I said, hey, you know what? Whether I get it, if I don't get it, this is going to be one hell of a story. And um, I, my last show was actually <laughs> last year this time. I did it in Chicago. I did Chicago in Chicago. And it's been a wonderful uh, experience ever since then. How did it impact your self-confidence? Oh, man, uh, in a huge way. I, I, listen, I, I'm not a traditional singer. Um, I can hold a couple notes here or there. Uh, but to to... Um, explore that part of me and be willing to, there's one thing to act in front of somebody, but then there's another way, thing to sing in front of somebody and, and in front of people. Uh, so that helped me out tremendously. And I, I, at this point, I'm like, man, there's nothing that I can't do. And now I'm like, you know, I want to play a role in Hamilton. That's my, <laughs> that's my next deal. That's my oh. next big thing. So it helped, it helped my, my confidence uh, tremendously. <laughs> I cannot thank you enough, man. What an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your time and insight, perspective, and vulnerability. Uh, it's a great example, well, and well, I'm grateful for well, it, Marty, Thank you. Well, hopefully I didn't ramble on too much, man, and, and hopefully that this this will help someone else out, that, that they're going through something or there's a dream that they're – wishing they would have done or haven't done or they're being challenged by adversity that, hey, you can get through it. You will get through it. It's only a test. And uh, to persist without exception. That's all I can say is to persist without exception for, for what you believe in. So hopefully this helps some people out. There is no question that it will. I can promise you that it will. And thank you so much for oh. taking the time, my man. Thank you. Blessings to you, my man. Travis, uh, I want your perspective on what what you really thought about that as a guy who grew up so aware of Eddie, and I know you're younger, but as a really small boy, he was probably the guy. And well, so that's the thing is, growing up, I didn't know too much. I didn't watch too much of him, obviously, so I was too young. But when you get indoctrinated into an Ohio State fan, you learn the history and – just how great, I mean, hell, his jersey is signed hanging up in my closet back home in Ohio. Like, he's someone that really? you just, yeah, I've got his autograph on a 2780 George jersey. You should have told him jersey. that, man. You should have told him that during the interview. I forgot to, to tell him, but it's just, you know, one of the most iconic photos 
uh, and I love to post it every so often because my uh, hatred of Notre Dame is, you know, pretty high <laughs> up there. Is that that photo of him running away from the Notre Dame players, and you know, just what he's he's just such a figure for Ohio State to show what you can become. How you can continually reinvent yourself if you refuse to settle. How you can continually challenge yourself that no dream is too big. And how you can chase those dreams and be undaunted no matter how crazy your boys or any critic may be that you're chasing something. You can go grab it. You can catch that dream. And my... I think the most impactful part of that interview to me was about his dad and about his last name. And I'm going to work my ass off to ensure that in my neighborhood and in my state and in this country, everybody's going to know the last name that my dad gave me. And it's going to be a respected, appreciated champion, the last name. I love that, man. And I'm so grateful for Eddie's time. Great job getting him, brother. I know. It probably meant even more to you than it did to me just because of of his stature in the Buckeye Nation. And, and man, reinvent. Like, who in the hell just ends up being the lead in Chicago? Like, what? What an amazingly talented man. And I love the vulnerability of I'm going to walk out there on that stage and I'm going to – open myself up and I'm going to be great and I'm scared to death right now, but I'm going to go out there and crush it. And that's what he's done. Playing Billy Flynn. That's another thing is former athletes. There's some avenues that they can go that are kind of the safe avenues, you know, being on air, you know, analyst or whatever, but he has these other passions, but to go after those, you have to open up and be vulnerable because there's no guarantee that you're going to be successful at what these other things are, and you're opening yourself up for failure. Right. He's not afraid to, to fail. That's it, man. That's vulnerability. That's what that is. The willingness to open yourself up and put that energy out, no matter what energy comes back to you, is true strength. And I'm really, I'm, I, I couldn't possibly be more impressed. Thanks so much to Eddie for his time. Uh, again, great job getting him, Travis. Before we get out of here, I want to say thank you so much to everybody, all of you who are opening yourself up right now to learn, opening yourself up to find a more vulnerable piece of yourself, to be self-aware and self-reflective. Thank you so much to everyone who is working very hard to make a push for equality, and see the world through someone else's perspective. That's very important right now. And I'm so grateful for our law enforcement officials, our firemen, our first responders, our military, both here in America and all over the globe, working so tirelessly and so selflessly to keep us free. And it's a unique time in the United States of America. And it's so important that we love one another. It's so important that we let kindness be our compass. That's what I'm trying to do right now. I'm trying to let kindness be my compass. Thank you all for listening to Marty Smith's America. Thank you for loving Marty Smith's America. 
we appreciate the, the opportunity to share these stories with you guys every week. Just be nice to each other, guys. We appreciate you. Be well. We'll try to do better next week.